Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Let me represent you well. And uh, I pray that everyone listening would put down their guard, not for what I have to say, but what you'll say as we look at your word. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I even start, um, beautiful verse in Psalm 33. The earth is full of the Hesed of God. The earth is full of the, some Bibles say kindness, some Bibles say mercy, some Bibles say loving kindness, some Bibles say love. It's the Hebrew word Hesed with a hard H, Hesed. And it is just the most wonderful, amazing word in the Old Testament. Um, so that's where we're headed. We're headed back to Hesed. And uh, if you're tired of hearing about it, I guess you could go to a church that they have something better to talk about. There's nothing better to talk about. Um, there's no other psalm I know of. Psalm um, 136 has that word 26 times in 26 verses. Just runs through the history of Israel and says this is the stuff that is driving us along like a current. But it fills everything. God's entire creation is saturated with this stuff, this attribute called chesed. Now, I was thinking sometimes we miss it and we don't understand its importance. And talking about God's chesed and how it fits in, his kindness, his love, how it fits into everything that goes on around us. Jesus said a time is coming where neither in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim are people going to worship. He said, God is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking people that want to get down to business with him. And in Isaiah 66, he says, I don't dwell in temples made with hands. He said, if you want me to draw near, tremble at my word. Who's here to tremble at the word of God? When you hear what he says, you want to respond to it. Then God's here and he's going to speak to us through his word. So we're looking at an ancient creed called the Old Roman Creed. And it, it is the creed upon which and from which the Apostles' Creed was later developed, kind of an embellishment of this old Roman creed. The older creed, I prefer it, even though it's not well known. A lot of you know the Apostles' Creed. You grew up Episcopalian or Catholic or Lutheran, and you said the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Virgin Mary, etc. This older creed has a little less to it, takes out the parts that are controversial, um, and so we're walking through the creed, and I believe it goes all the way back to apostolic times, the times of the apostles, and it's kind of some of the most basic, fundamental stuff that a Christian, a real Christian, uh, it's kind of a template, a framework, so just foundational beliefs that every true Christian should be able to say, uh-huh, 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 and it doesn't go into detail um, on some, it doesn't tell you when Jesus is coming back or how he's coming back, um, but it says he's coming back. And it just makes these broad statements that every Christian should agree to. And uh, a lot of scholars believe it was connected to a baptismal formula. So when you're going to get baptized, you would, you would agree to or say this old creed called the Roman creed or the Roman sign. And what I want to talk about today is, go, go, go. It's not going. Is it on slide? Click inside the screen. How about there? No. Aha, there it is. 
What's missing from the creed? And I bet you can guess. I already blew my cover. Oh, all right. You got it. So let's close in prayer. No, it's, it's, you got all these factual statements, but like the fish talking about their surroundings and where they live and the plants and the rocks and the other species and all that, and forgetting to talk about the water, right? So if we go through the creed and we don't, we don't understand that the thing that undergirds everything that God does is his kindness. Uh, we have completely missed the point. And a lot of people go through the creed and they miss the point. They say, oh, God's about power. Oh, God's about rules. God's about, but the center of who God is, the scripture says all his ways are hesed and faithfulness. I mean, and, and this is the centerpiece in the Old Testament. Let me get to the New Testament They'll use a couple words to refer back to the Hesed of God, the Greek words. Some of you are in Greek. See the hands of all those Greek students. Okay. Charis, which a lot of times will translate as grace, or Elias, sometimes will translate that as mercy. But that points back to this incredible attribute of God. But there's another word that they like to use even more in the New Testament, which kind of swallows them all up, which is agape, which is love. But you can't understand the love of God unless you understand the chorus of God, the Elias of God, and the Old Testament concept of the Hesed of God. The creed doesn't say anything about it, but this is really what's driving the heart of God and everything that God does. So I want to talk about that today. What's missing from the creed? There's no statement. I believe in the outrageous, mind-blowing, incomprehensible kindness of God, which that's in my creed. Maybe that comes right after. I don't know what it comes right after, but it's important. Important, huge. Because a lot of people call themselves Christians and they really haven't tasted that yet. I think God is a jerk. I think God is into making up arbitrary rules and regulations and taking away your fun and, um, or, or making you jump through hoops so you can spend eternity with him. That's all a bunch of baloney. If you understand who he is, you understand it is kindness, his love, and it's combined with infinite wisdom. So everything that he wants you to do is the best thing for you to do. And it's driven by a heart of love for you. So it's missing from the creed, but we, we got to work our way there. Um, where are my glasses? I've already gone through some of this. In the red uh, is going to be some of the additions that you'll find in the Apostles' Creed. But the old Roman creed would say, I believe, and of course it's in Greek, so it's pistuo, it's not credo, credo's Latin, pistuo's Greek. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then we added, our, our church fathers added, maker of heaven and earth. Which say hey, that's that's fine. That's a fine addition, but some of the additions make it a little more controversial. This one's just everybody can swallow the old Roman creed without any problems. And if they're truly a Christian. And in Christ Jesus, his only son, monogene, his only unique son. And last week we clarified the real simple things about Christianity, like the Trinity and the hypostatic union. We just blew past those. Those are easy to solve. You're supposed to laugh. Those are impossible <laughs> mysteries. We talked about those. So this week, though, we're going to look at this. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of Christians who don't believe this anymore. But they're not Christians. They call themselves Christians. The world is full of people that call themselves Christians. This morning, their churches packed thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in this country and other countries who say they're Christians and they no longer believe that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born, and it says, and the Virgin Mary clarified it. 
Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary. That the Holy Spirit conceived this child in the womb of a virgin. This was very important to the apostles, early church fathers. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, so that he suffered was added, but under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. And then they added, descended into hell, and they probably shouldn't have, because that's added a lot of problems. It's really hard to support that from the New Testament. But, uh, so this is why I like the older version a little better than the Apostles' Creed. But I just want to look at these these lines here. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And... uh, I just said that. That's the part I'm going to look at right there. I just said that. Okay. And the main point uh, that uh, we should get out of this is if we are real Christians, standing in the line of other real Christians, all the way back to the days of the apostles, this is real history. This is not religion is good for the kids. So we'll take them to Sunday school so they can learn about fairies and trolls and you know, people walking on water and, you know, Noah the ark so we can get a nice little lamp for our baby's room and, you know, stuff. stuff. It's cute little stories that make life better, nice little family time. We dress up and then go to Denny's afterwards and have the buffet. And that's just a nice little family cultural. No, this is real history. This is real stuff. This is the most important stuff. Stuff to live and die for. And the point here is this happened in history. So there was a real human who's also God. That's the hypostatic union. How are you God and human at the same time? It's one of the great mysteries of the faith who really engaged us in our time, space, realm in the person of Jesus Christ. How did he get here? The Holy Spirit conceived this human in the, in the womb of a virgin. That's how he broke into our time, space, realm. And then he was born of this woman named Mary. And then he suffered and died under a historical figure by the name of Pontius Pilate. And he died. And he, next week, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to save that for next week. And if you want to do homework to get ready for next week, read 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection chapter. But this is history. And uh, fodder for interesting sermons. I could go in a whole bunch of directions. <laughs> You'd find them very fascinating, but it wasn't what God put on my heart today or all week long. Such as the historicity of Jesus. So we're talking about history from non-Christian sources from that era. Like the Jewish historian Josephus or the Roman historian Tacitus or the Roman uh, government official Pliny. The fact that Jesus was is beyond uh, anybody that denies it is just not credible. I was even reading about the enemies of Orthodox Christianity. Someone like we mentioned him a lot, Bart Ehrman. He's like, people that say he didn't exist are just ridiculous. That's just foolishness. He existed. We know he existed. And what went down uh, in scripture is what went down. Now, his enemies won't admit that. They'll say it's been embellished. But the, the historical facts and the people in the narratives, and we say it is fact. We say that the scripture is fact. But we could go off on that and just verify. There's other religions 
Should I pick on them that come up with fanciful tales and you can't validate what they've said? You can validate people, time, places. So we could look at historians or we could look at archaeological evidence like the Pilot Stone up here, which they found in 1961, which verifies that Pilot, I mean, this is a this is an archaeological find that verifies that he was indeed the figure that was ruling at the time when he when the Bible says he was ruling. And they're always digging up archaeological stuff. The critics of the Bible are saying it's all myth. And then the archaeologists are like, hey, look what we found. I'm like, oh, dang, let's go attack something else. And they go, hey, this is myth. And the archaeologists are like, hey, look what we found. You know, and this is just, this is the history of biblical archaeology. The critics who don't want the Bible to be true saying it's not true. And then the archaeological finds continuing to verify scripture. Well, that would be an interesting study to validate the historicity of uh the events that the Apostles' Creed is trying to drive home. But we're not going to do that. You can do that on your own. Um, it's kind of apologetics stuff. But I want to get to something else. And there's one more thing that would be a really interesting study that we're not going to be able to do this morning, which is the fact that since the Enlightenment, which is the early 1700s, scholars and biblical scholars and theologians and quote-unquote Christians have been attacking the historicity of the Bible like rabid dogs. There used to be a time where uh, the metaphysical is just the spiritual realm. In the pre-modern world before 1700, people basically believed that we could know the physical world and the metaphysical slash spiritual world. We could just know facts about them. And basically what the Bible teaches is that this spiritual world, this metaphysical world breaks into our world on a regular basis. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the Trinitarian God broke in. How? By conceiving a child in the womb of a virgin. And so God basically, Jesus Christ is basically God with skin on. And so that's how he broke in and taught us more deeply who God the Father was and then, and then went to a cross to bear our sins in his body on the cross so we could be reconciled to God. Um, since the modernity, since the 1700s, people said you can't know the metaphysical realm. You can only know the physical realm, which is science and math and facts and things you can take in through your senses and you can test in a lab and spiritual things are just kind of fantastical mythical things. And if they help you get through life, go ahead. You believe in Jesus and I'll believe in my little pony and whatever. Um, I believe in fairies. This is, but this is a, just a, something that's happened philosophically to us, but ultimately we didn't realize what we were doing and embracing this paradigm as we have now we've entered into the postmodern era where we have undone all truth and all scholars and all philosophers and all linguists right now who are thinking at a high level level are clamoring saying, how can we prove anything anymore? I don't have time to talk about that, but that's where we, that's where we are as a culture. But those of us who are true Christians, we say, no, Jesus was a pre-modern and he believed that we could know the spiritual and the physical and that spiritual was the foundation of the physical. And I'm going with Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm not going to be a modern. I'm not going to say science is real knowledge and spiritual stuff is helpful knowledge. No, spiritual, again, like I've said before, an angel's as real as a horse and hell is as real as New York City. Um, that's not the way you think as a modern, but that, that's the way pre-moderns thought. Some pretty smart smart pre-moderns, but the moderns have undone everything for us. And so now we're just, a lot of you are unaware of this, but we are, we're in a crisis right now um, in terms of what can be known. And it is leading to some cultural, that's why, that's why we're seeing such craziness culturally is uh, a lot of this has to do with 
this era that we're in. Well, I'm just going to go with Jesus. You can know the spiritual. You can know the physical. The spiritual is the foundation of the physical. And Jesus shows us the way. Um, another thing, uh, I, I already said this, so I'll blow past this. Um, right now, there are many, many churches in this town, other towns, that uh, have bought into modernism or postmodernism, and they don't really believe the spiritual things affirmed by scripture anymore. Um, do some research, come to a seminar, avoid those churches. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing is church looks like the one you grew up in that taught Jesus and believed in the Trinity and taught salvation. They look just like them, sing the same songs, but at the heart, they're, they're not the same. Um, then there's a more sneaky kind of denial that's gone on. I talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer a lot. People like to read Cost for Discipleship and books like that as if he's one of us. He's not. They, they teach the Bible as a narrative. It's a helpful story that God kind of touched with a fairy wand, but it's not historically accurate. So it doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead. It's just the story that he rose from the dead. And this is based on, and this is now taking over all of our seminaries, influencing even our Bible-believing seminaries. Uh, and it all comes from a guy by the name of Karl Barth, who started a new Christian movement called Neo-Orthodoxy. Nobody will read his stuff because he's impossible, but everybody thinks they, they're cool because they like to drop his name in coffee shops or you know, seminars that they're teaching at their master's program. But uh, he basically took away the historical reality of the Bible. And I'm not going to preach about him either, but that would be an interesting sermon. But how the historicity and the truth of what the creed is affirming has been ravaged in the day and time that we're in. Um, and pastors in this town do not believe in the historicity of the things in the Bible. There are some who do. There's actually a lot of good pastors in this town. There's actually... About 20, 30 pastors who, who, who could easily sign their name off on the Roman Creed and would amen, hallelujah, virtually everything I'm saying to you. And all those pastors are friends. Manhattan's actually quite a bastion of, of good churches, gospel preaching, Bible believing. And when somebody says, you know what, I just don't feel like uh, this is a church for me. I'm going to that church. A lot of times I'm like, well, hallelujah, that's a great teacher. You know, go, go on over there. He's going to be telling you pretty much the same thing. Um, but uh, there are churches that have gone down this other road. They don't believe in the historicity of it. How important is the historicity of it? You're not a Christian if you don't believe that this spiritual realm, the Trinitarian God, invaded this realm in the person of Jesus Christ because everything breaks down. He had to invade to solve your problem. How did he invade? The Holy Spirit conceived a child in the, in the womb of a virgin, and that child's name was Jesus. But wasn't just a human, it was actually the second member of the Trinity, eternal God, omniscient, omnipresent, but he, but he set aside all of his powers and prerogatives as deity to become a human being so that he could meet our need. So the phrases of the creed are loaded, loaded, loaded. So I believe, uh, and again, I can't even remember exactly the, the phraseology of the Roman creed because I've said the Apostles' Creed so often, but I believe God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son, his monogenes, unique son, our Lord, our Kurios, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's a historical event. But what's missing from the creed, again, this is probably the best place to whatever, interject or 
infuse the discussion with the kindness and the love of God, because ultimately what was driving, what drove the creation, what drove God sending his son, it was the love of God. It was the kindness of God. Do you know the love of God? Do you know the kindness of God? Do you know what's driving all of these facts? Of course I do. God loves me. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to play on my smartphone. Do you have any anxiety? Do you ever experience depression? Any fears? Do you know that your prayers are going to be answered? Do you have confidence that God is guiding your path? That he has good intentions for you? Do you know that he loves you more than your mother, more than your father, more than your best friend, more than your spouse? Do you have utter total confidence that he is surrounding you and he is leading you to a good place in your life? Um, If you can't answer just yes, yes, amen, hallelujah, then there's a good chance you don't know the love of God as well as you think you do. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Anxiety is fear. If you know God loves you, you're not anxious about anything. Someone drains your bank account, you're just whistling Dixie. You're like, I don't care. Someone betrays you. God's got this under control. He's going to turn this into gold. You think that's impossible? I'm just saying, biblically, you don't know the love of God. The apostles, what do they do when they get thrown in prison? They're singing worship songs. You're bulletproof. You're indestructible. You're untouchable. This is, the, this is actually the goal of our human existence, to understand with clarity the love of God. And so I started meditating on this this week, and I was like, God, I don't want to preach on the creed, because I got some new insights on your love, and I want to preach on your love. And so I was just like, I don't know how I can do this. I'll just inject it right here, where God himself, who is love, injected himself into the creation as a person, Jesus Christ. And so let's talk a little more about this. Now, I had a couple more things about the historicity. Of, of the narrative, if you're not sure it's historically true, which is the point of those two lines of the creed. Uh, who's watched The Case for Christ? If you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's a great film. It's like a real Hollywood film. Sometimes Christian films are like, you know, it's pretty good, but you know, it's a Christian movie. It's, it's pretty good. So there's like three good actors, but there's one of them was like the producer's wife. And so she had to get a camera. It's terrible. When she gets in there, it all breaks down. Now, this is like a real Hollywood movie that you don't get lost on because of the bad acting. But um, it's based on this book by Lee Strobel, which he is a uh, big time, I think it was Chicago Sun-Times reporter. His wife became a Christian, so he wanted to disprove it and get her out because he thought it was craziness. And he ended up joining the team because he said the historical evidence was so overwhelming. And then another great one that I will recommend and then get off this historical track is uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabel Qureshi, who unfortunately, I think he passed away. Young guy, up and coming, amazing apologist, um, just a voice for Christ in, in his generation. He passed away in 2017, but this was how he found Christ. Uh, his best friend, David Wood, who is an apologist right now to, to Muslims, uh, was prepared to meet all of the skeptical attacks that this very, very smart Muslim brought against Christianity and ended up, uh, Nabil Qureshi ended up joining the team and going on to study at Oxford to get a PhD to champion the cause of Christ, answering all those questions that your friends ask, you know, in the freshman dorm who think they're really smart. Like if the Bible was copied so many times, how do you know we got the right one? That's like such a silly question. Once you study it out, the person who asks it should be ashamed. 
Um, uh, you know, how do we know that, you know, how, how can you believe in a trinity or things like that? And they'll give answers from science, you know. So this David was just really prepared. So if you have any questions and you want those answered, here's a couple of resources that are popular level and a couple of my favorites. But now let's get on to the love of Christ. So God in history basically injects himself in the form of a man. And the place where this is stated probably more clearly than anywhere is John. Anyone do any memorization in the prologue of John? Hands high. I want to see hands high. Good. That's great. In the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus. It's the expression of who God is. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So this word, this expression of God the Father, the manifestation of God the Father, he is one and the same in essence with the Father. In the beginning was the word. The word was uh, with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All This is Jesus. All things came into being by him. Jesus is creator. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then it goes on to say, and the word became flesh. This is what the creed is saying. That Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It is the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, who is basically put into this realm so that he can accomplish God's mission for humanity, redeem us back to God, but also show us who God is. This prologue ends with, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus. He explained him. So if you want to know who God is, you study Jesus. You don't study Greek metaphysics, or that which is what a lot of Christian theology is. Some of you smart guys were studying so much theology, you don't know you're studying Greek metaphysics. If we were doing what the Bible said, we'd say, study the life of Jesus. Get, get down into the Greek of what the gospel authors are saying about Jesus, and then compare that to the Hebrew of what the, the Hebrew-speaking authors were saying about God in the Old Testament, and see the things that kind of come out uh, of all the words in just in, in bold contrast and bright, you know, shining emphasis, and then you'll figure out who God is. So, but the main thing is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews says. But John talks about this, how God injects himself into human history. Then it says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Whose glory? God's glory. Glory as the of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we're going to go on our ride to Hesed. So what most people don't know is that this word grace and truth here, and I've gone over this a lot, because I've already heard this, but if you can't teach it, you don't know it. Until you can teach this, you don't know it yet. And some of you people have never heard this. Grace and truth is actually John's rendition of, it's the Greek word charis and the uh, Greek word aletheia, which is grace and truth. And it is John referring back to Exodus 34, 6. And the Hebrew words are uh, chesed and emet. Chesed, remember chesed, I said chesed. What he's saying here is what God told Moses back in the Old Testament about who he was. And I go over this all the time. Exodus 34, pinnacle moment in the Old Testament, revelation of God, the, the, the description of God that, that is just quoted again and again and again, almost like a mantra for the Old Testament. It's not a mantra because we're not Hindus. But anyway, just repeated over and over and over. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, great in hesed, kindness, and emmet, faithfulness. 
So this is John making a reference back to that, saying, what did Jesus manifest? He manifested what God told to Moses. And the psalmists all sang about, and that whole description of God is really focusing on the hesed of God. But this is John referring back to that. And I have several scholarly works at home by Greek scholars proving that that's indeed what John is doing. Because you could use the word charis to refer back to hesed, or you could use the word elias to refer back to hesed. John liked cars. So he said, Jesus Christ is manifesting the God who spoke to Moses. That's what he's doing here. And where you see Karis, if he had been speaking Hebrew, he would have said Hesed. And if you look at the Hebrew translation, so I'm getting too confusing. If you look at the Hebrew translation of this, modern Hebrew translation, guess what word they put for Karis? Not hard, Hesed. That's what they did. So just look it up if you, if you have the time. Because Karis is Hesed, Hesed is Karis. In the mind of John, he's just speaking to a Greek audience. But he said, Jesus is showing us what this stuff is. Like I said, Psalm 33, the earth is full of it. Jesus shows us what it is in the way he engages people. And uh, so then when you go to, John is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels, and they're very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And for those of you who are brand new to Christianity, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the first four books of the New Testament, and they're all stories from eyewitnesses or first-generation Mark. Is a, anyway, they're all stories about the life of Jesus from kind of four different perspectives, so we can compare uh, and, and get a much fuller picture of what was happening in the life of Jesus. So, and John's is the most different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar, have a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same words of Christ. Uh, John, it's almost like John said, I'm going to put all the stuff in there that the first three Gospels missed. So it's very, very unique. The first three Gospels don't like the word charis when they talk about God's kindness. They like the Greek word elias. And... Uh, you can almost forget everything I've said up to this point and just pretend like I'm starting the sermon all over again, and it'll still be great because there's a lot of technical stuff there. But if you feel like you have to know it, just, just follow me from this point on. Jesus went from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's office, and he said to him, follow me. Tax collectors were dirty dogs. They were like gangster IRS agents. They were like mafioso IRS agents that worked for the communists in our country. I mean, literally, they were hated. They worked for the Romans. They ripped people off. They were wealthy. Um, people hated them. They were sinful. And so their friends tend to be sinful. So Jesus walks by this sinful, sinful dude, and he says, hey, follow me. Just jumps up, and he followed him. It happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax gatherers. And sinners came. What kind of sinners? Prostitutes, drunks, thieves, crooks, all just rotten people that religious people wouldn't associate with. They were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, those are the religious hoity-toity people, saw them, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Um, elsewhere, he's called a friend of sinners, gluttons, and prostitutes. He's, I mean, so Jesus preferred broken people. So if you're a broken people or were a broken people, 
Say amen. 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 He likes those kind of people. So people that have sinned a lot, not because he wants them to stay in their sin, but because sin's going to destroy them and he wants to get them out. But they, these religious people saw them and they, 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 why, they said, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then he tells them, go learn what this means. He tells the religious people in his day, go learn what this phrase means. I desire Elias rather than sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, again, Elias is the Greek translation of that word hesed. And this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's saying, if you knew what this line meant, you uh, religious people wouldn't be so thick-headed. You wouldn't be such numbskulls. You wouldn't be missing the broad side of the barn of what God really wants for the world. If you just knew what this one word meant, and it, and it says instead of sacrifice, you think it's all about ditties and rituals and stand up and sit down and turn around and say this back when the priest says that and offer this. That's not what it's about at all. It's about this magic word called Elias. And if you knew what it was, which in the Greek is called Hesed, uh, you'd be tracking with God and you'd understand why I'm sitting here talking with tax collectors and prostitutes. But because you're clueless about what real religion is about, um, that, that's why you don't like me. Now, again, who is Jesus? He's God with skin on. So he knows what he's talking about. here. He's arguing with religious people and he's saying you're clueless. Where does this come from? Hosea. So this is really what I wanted to get to this week. It is amazing to me that of all the places in the Old Testament that Jesus could have pulled a phrase about Hesed from, he went to Hosea. And if you want to understand the love of God, go meditate on the book of Hosea. Jesus had 39 books he could have pulled from in the Old Testament. And he went to Hosea. Hosea is a story of a prostitute and a man who loves that prostitute. I don't know why I've known about this for 25 years. I don't know why I've never put two and two together. And so the quotation Jesus chose came out of a book about a prostitute. And basically it's a story about a prophet who falls in love with a woman who happens to be a prostitute. And he just can't stop loving this woman. His heart is on fire for this woman and he chases her around and she cheats and she cheats and she cheats and she leaves him. And he even pays her bills while she is off cheating on him. And he keeps going after her, keeps going after her, and keeps going after her. And what is, what is the point? God says, that is how I feel about my people. And what we learn for the rest of the Bible, God says, that is how I feel about People, period. Because in the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul applies that to all the rest of us. God says, my people, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, they are seldom good. And Israel is, they're horrific. They're, they're awful. You know, in the end of Judges, they're exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, they're, they're sexually perverted. They're worshiping idols. They're offering their children they, uh, to, to Molech. They're sick and perverted, and they're killing each other, and they're warring with each other. And you know, there's a civil war, and it splits in half. And you got Israel warring against Judah. They're just a mess. And God says they never, they don't love me, they don't serve me. Um, occasion, there's a couple bright spots, a couple revivals under a couple kings, but for the most part, they're just like 
thumbing their noses at God and running after other gods and committing all these abominable atrocities. Someone who doesn't know that just hasn't studied the Old Testament. The Bible basically said the Old Covenant, the Old, the old Testament is the Old Covenant. So it didn't work that well. That's why God instituted a new covenant. Um, that's the one we're under. But he said, I always loved my people and I pursued my people like Hosea pursued his prostitute wife by the name of Gomer. And uh, this quote that Jesus, um, let me see here, won't be a good place to start. I'm going to jump ahead because I've already told you a lot about Hosea and Gomer. It's really sad because it looks like it's kind of this back and forth. And it's very, it's very much like a husband would be if he loved his wife, his wife kept cheating on him. And he just, there's parts of him that looks really angry and God's like, you're going to suffer and you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to reap what you've sown and you're going to experience the consequences of your actions and you're going to suffer and your kids are going to suffer. And then in the next paragraph, he's like, please come back to me, please. Just If you forsake it all, I'll just take you back. I promise. You know, it's just, and this is one of the most, this is almost heartbreaking. This part right here. Hosea is a representation of God. He said, I'm going to allure her. I'll bring her to the wilderness. I'll speak to her heart. And some of your Bibles, I'll speak tenderly to her. I'm going to win her back. I'll give her vineyards in the Valley of Acre as a door of hope. She'll respond there as in the day of her youth, like when we used to date and she loved me. He said, I'll win her back. I'm, go I'm going to get her back. As in the day when she came out of the land of Egypt. So those of you, those of you who know your Bible, you know he's talking about the Exodus. It will come about on that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which is my husband. That's just Hebrew for my husband. And no longer will you call me Bali, which is, it can be a general term that you use for your husband, but it can also be used for kind of a despotic overlord, but it was also used for a pagan god by the name of Baal. So she said, I'm going to have this more intimate, tender name that you're going to call me. I'm going to win you back. I'm going to win back your mind completely towards me. And he said, you're not even going to use the name Baal anymore that they, that they attach to that Canaanite deity. It will no longer be mentioned. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and favor in compassion. Yeah, that would be the Rahum Rahamim words, the moving in the guts, the Anyway, I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. But this, this passage can almost make, you, almost make you cry. You think about God like, please, please, God, I don't care what you've done. Yes, you should be put to death, quite frankly, for your abominations. You're, you're, you've defiled yourself and you've made, you've made my name a disgrace and you've ruined our home. But I cannot stop loving you. What is God explaining here? Hesed. The earth is full of the Hesed of God. That's what he's explained through Hosea. And that is what Jesus said. If you religious Pharisees who think it's all about rituals and God's up in heaven saying, jump, jump higher. Oh, you didn't jump high enough. Go to hell. You know, oh, you didn't do the rituals. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't turn around. You turn around four times. You're supposed to turn around five times. You didn't do your baptism right. You didn't do. So you don't understand that God is like a, someone whose heart is just on fire and he's wooing and crying and reaching out his hands. You don't know him. And unfortunately, most of the world doesn't know him. Religious people in Jesus, they didn't know him. A lot of people call themselves Christians and they don't know him. A lot of people graduate from seminary. A lot of people know the Greek and the Hebrew. 
A lot of people have a lot of the Bible memorized. They just miss this. And this is what's really behind all those statements in the creed. And that's what it's swimming in. And if you say the creed, you don't understand that it is the love of God that caused God to inject himself in the history of humanity by being born in the womb of a virgin so he could go to a cruel cross to die for you because you are that prostitute who forsook him and made, brought disgrace on his name. And, you know, like the prodigal who leaves home and squanders everything he has on women and loose living and parties and all this stuff, disrespected, disregarded the father. And then in that story, the prodigal, when he comes home, what does the father do? He runs and he runs and he embraces him. And the boy says, I'm not worthy. He has this whole speech planned out. If you actually study the prodigal son, he has this speech planned out. And the dad's like, shut up. I don't want to hear your speech about how you're not worthy to be my son. I love you. I'm just so glad you're home. Let's have a party. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. No longer worthy to be your son. Hire me as one of your slaves. The father didn't even let him do the speech. It's your home. You're my son. You're going to be fully restored because I love you. So this is where Jesus takes this word. Hesed from when he tells religious people in his day, you need to know this word. It just never occurred to me before. I mean, it's everywhere in the Psalms. It's everywhere in the prophets. Jesus could have pulled it from a hundred different places, more than a hundred different places. And he took it from Hosea. And this is the love of God. And this is what, there's no statement about it in the creed. It's interesting. I'll look at some other quotes from Hosea. After you get through the narrative part where Hosea says he's going to win his wife back and God says, I'm going to win my wife back. He brings the charge against Israel. He says, I've cut them in prophets by the prophet, uh, cut them in pieces by the prophets, which means the prophets have come with harsh language against my people. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like that light that shines. He says, I desire hesed rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There's a quote. It's right there. It's Hosea 6.6. 6. When we lose sight of who God is, then we lose sight of what we're supposed to be. Right now, Bible-believing, born-again Christians are seen as a bunch of mean jerks. We are. can't believe you said that. I'm leaving this church and I hate you. Well, that's my point right there. <laughs> mean jerks. We split churches. We cut off fellowship. We censure everybody who doesn't agree with us. God hates fags rallies, right? Keep those foreigners out. I mean, we have our rights. We're mean. And uh, would, what would Jesus, what did he do with the sinners? What, how did Jesus treat the homosexuals? How did Jesus treat the prostitutes? How did Jesus treat the foreigners? He didn't tell people what you're doing is okay. He said, you're doing that because you're broken. And let me love you back to wholeness. And they loved being around them. Because a lot of times broken people know they're broken. It's not going to admit it to you because you're mean and you're a jerk. And you don't, the argument you're having is just like, I want to win the argument. It's not, I want to love you back to wholeness. But right here, he's telling his people, you don't manifest my kindness because you don't know who I am. You have a religion and you say, you know, God, but it's not me. And so here, yes, they're going to church and they're having their festivals and everything um, or temple or synagogue. But he said, I want Hesed, and because you don't look like me, I know you're not seeing me. I want Hesed rather than sacrifice, 
And here, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, there's always parallelism. And you can say things more emphatically by saying it twice with a slightly different turn on it. What is hesed coupled with here? The knowledge of God. To know hesed is to know God, and not to know it is not to know God. And if your God is not the God of Hosea, and the God who manifested himself in Christ, your God is some monstrosity you cooked up. I don't care where you were raised or if you think your tradition was right. If your God doesn't look like Jesus and he doesn't act like the God who pursued uh, a gomer, the prostitute, then you're missing the point. And so this was just really, and Jesus says this twice. He doesn't say it once. Uh, he says it in Matthew chapter 9. And then he says it, I think, in chapter 12 as well. Isn't that 12? Anyway. But he tells the, 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 the religious leaders twice. If you knew what this means, I want, I have it in the footnote here. Yep, 12-7. So, um, I already read that to you. And this is, these are just more of his words to God, to Israel, the Lord said to me, and, and it's always kind of mixing up Hosea's love for his wife and God's love for Israel to make this point. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. So they turn to other gods and love sweet cakes. This doesn't just mean they like going to Dunkin' Donuts. It means... <laughs> It means that they are into the luxuries that they think their disobedience will give them. And a lot of times it's affiliated with the worship of other gods. A lot like us. We don't really want to serve God. We don't really want to surrender to God because am I really going to get that house in the suburb and the white picket fence and the 3.2 kids and the two Mercedes in the garage if I serve Jesus? I don't think so. I think I'm going to invest in stocks and bonds and get the job that I want to get instead of really seeking the Lord and see what he wants in my life. We're very much like Gomer. But uh, so I bought her. So this is when she's all worn out. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but think about a prostitute who's maybe past 40, just gone, been run over by a truck 50,000 times, never had a loving relationship, had a bunch of kids, they're probably all over the place. The courts took them all the way, right? And now her beauty's gone. Uh, they maybe could have auctioned her off for a good price when she was younger. She's just this worn out, dried up old wreck of a person. Got nothing to show for her life. Ugh. And Jose says, I'll take her. Why? Because he's hardwired. He just loves her. It's not because of what she's done or because he's just hardwired to love her. And that's the whole point. God's hardwired to love you. doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or anything. This is, this is why Jesus said, if you knew what this, this one phrase meant, I want hesed and I don't care about all your religious ditties. If they're helping you to understand hesed, do them. But if they're getting in the way or you think that's the end of it all, all these little religious rituals and rites and you're not kind and compassionate, like I'm kind and compassionate, you're missing the whole point. So Hosea buys her back. And then he says, now I'm going to win you back. And now 
you'll love me. Finally, you'll love me. And that's the heart of God. And so then down here, this is the third chapter, and this is the break into the fourth chapter. Chapter. Listen to the word of the Lord, our sons of Israel. The Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or hesed. Again, that's those two words we see in John, two concepts, chorus and aletheia. Um, no faithfulness or hesed or knowledge of God's land. Um, and basically, I put the Hebrew down there just to confuse you. No, <laughs> because of the, what you see again, again, it's called the particle of non-existence, which means there is none of this going on among my people, which means I know my people aren't seeing me rightly. Because when you see God like this, what do you do? We love because he loves, right? That's why we love. Why in the world are you letting that homeless person live in your house? Because that's what he did for me. Why are you hanging out with that guy who just got out of jail? He's a sex offender. Because because I was a maybe not a sex offender, but I was a I was a I certainly could have been, right? Why why do you love that person that, that aborted their child? Because man, the only reason I didn't do that was because I was I was dealt a better hand in life, or maybe I went through something worse. I was given that love, so I can't do anything but give it away. When you finally figure out that's what religion is, then you're starting to get it. That's what it is. That's what religion is. Jesus said, you guys are missing everything because you're missing Hesed. And, and unfortunately, right now in the church, those of us who call ourselves Christian, we go off to seminary and we learn Greek metaphysics. We don't learn about the Hesed of God. And then we learn about philosophy. And then we think church is about, right now we're all in growth, 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 growth. You know, and It's like, no, it's about Hesed. It's about kindness. And it's about reaching out to the broken. It's about loving people with the love with which God loved us. And that's the light that comes in the world. And the world doesn't comprehend it. The world doesn't understand it. And that transforms everything. But unfortunately, there's no statement about it in the creed. And so you could miss it. That's my favorite thing to talk about. I could, I would talk about it every single Sunday. I wish I could. I wish I could talk about it every Sunday. There's nothing better and the love of God, there's nothing the devil fights more ferociously for you to miss. He doesn't care if you get a PhD or you're ordained as a priest or a minister, as long as you miss the love of God. Because once you understand the love of God, do you know why he hates sin? Because sin kills things. It's the only reason he hates sin. Everything he asks you not to do, it's because you're going to destroy. You might be addicted to it. You might really, really want to do it. But you're just going to kill things. It's not going to work out for you. So just give it up. Give it to me. Walk in my ways. I'll show you how to live. I'll show you how to live abundantly. Everything I want you to do, it comes from his hesed. It comes from his heart. It comes from his kindness. And ultimately, why did Jesus Christ, why was he conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, suffer death for you? Because you deserve to die. Because you were Gomer, the prostitute. Um, and the only reason you weren't 10 times worse than you have been up to this point is because you just didn't have opportunity. You're born into a nice house. Some of you guys sin pretty hard. You're like, I ain't arguing with you. Right? Some of you guys, you think you're pretty good. Well, the only reason you're, you even have any semblance of goodness is because you just weren't put in a very tough situation. But had you been born in a father's home in the ghetto or whatever, or some other country, some third world, you know, developing country where you had to prostitute yourself or your kids starve. I mean, any of us could have done just about anything. And God says, but I love you, and so I'm going to take the punishment. That's what the crucifixion is about. God interjects in reality, in real history, himself. 
born of a virgin, and then dies for you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves you. And uh, someone told me the other day, I think it might have been, I might be sitting in this room. They said, my, one of my relatives is complaining because the pastor talks too much about the love of God. Because <laughs> that person needs to be slapped. Because <laughs> you know what your soul, we're dying for this. We're, you don't know it, but what you're scratching, clawing, and yearning for, and aching for all the time is this. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Won't let come appear before God. Psalm 42, Psalm 63. Like, a, you know, my soul thirsts for you, longs for you in a drying, weary land where there is no water. But I beheld you in the sanctuary. Your hesed is better than life. That's what it says, Psalm 63. This is what you're dying for, whether you know it or not. You need to know that God loves you like this. And then you don't have to earn anything. All you do is have to come, surrender, get off the throne of your heart. Say, look, if he loves me like that, then certainly I can let him call the shots. Piece of cake. Where do you want me to work? Oh, you want me to date this person? No problem. You want me to marry that person? You want me to go here? You want me to, you want me to die today? No problem. I'll die. Paul, if you really know God, you're not afraid of anything because he's love. He's chesed. He's kindness. So anyway, gone a little bit over time. Um. I told you in Romans 9, he applies this Hosea concept to us, the wild, crazy mountain people, Gentiles, right, coming down from the hills, you know, like in Lord of the Rings, the crazy mountain people. He says, I'll call those who are not my people, my people. That's us. Those who are not beloved, beloved. It'll be in the place where it said to them, you're not my people. That was us. There you'll be called sons of the living God. Why? Because he loves us like Hosea loved Gomer. But more. He loves you, mothers, like you love your children, but more. So what's missing? This line. I believe in the outrageous, incomprehensible kindness of God. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And I pray this. There's anyone here who is touched in the heart because they maybe have heard for the first time how much you love them. They wouldn't run out the door. They wouldn't doubt it they would plunge into it because you are the answer. And Jesus, you're the answer. And you proved it. You proved it by serving people, even though you are God. You proved it by laying down your life for us to take our penalty on yourself so that we could have a relationship with you. We could be restored. We love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we just worship you. We love who you are. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for coming and thanks for being here, people on Zoom.